So the psalm we read this morning had a line in it that said, uh, go eat the fat and drink sweet wine. That wouldn't go over well with Dr. Dean Ornish, would it? <laughs> you read the Bible, there's a whole lot of eating fat and you know stuff going on, the wine on the leaves, but, you know, there it is. I want to preach on all three readings this morning from Nehemiah, who we hardly ever hear from, from 1 Corinthians, and from the Gospel, where we begin now in the Gospel to have Jesus move into his uh, earthly ministry and his preaching and teaching the middle bits that I've been talking a great deal about over the last several weeks. So I want to say something about all that. Um, it's not absolutely clear why Nehemiah is being read. I, I should say this, too. I wish there was a book. Um, there are some fragmentary explanations in a variety of places. There's no book uh, that I know of that was written and said, here's even in the standing liturgical commission stuff, um, why we read what we read when we read it at the liturgy. Why did we choose these readings? The tradition gives us some of this. I mean, some of the readings that we read, for example, during uh, uh, Christmas and Epiphany and then in uh, Easter and Lent are in the ancient worship books that go back into the, uh, you know, 6th or 7th century. But there's no explanation as to why they were chosen or what they thought were the reason why we're going to read them, and I wish there were was a place where we could access that more readily. But here's what I think about what Nehemiah, we read Nehemiah for. Nehemiah connects to the gospel, and it does it in an uh, interesting way. If you notice that in Nehemiah, this is a story, Ezra and Nehemiah is about the rediscovery of the Torah after the Babylonian captivity. They went, got back to Jerusalem. The temple was just in ruins and everything. And somebody walked out with some scrolls and went, you know, oh. So, and I think in Ezra, when it says they read out loud the, the Torah to the people and they were assembled and they wept when they heard the reading of the Torah. I, well, okay. But uh, it was a pretty long read, it seems to me. But here's why I think it's there. This is a model in Nehemiah of the synagogue liturgy. This is one of the ancient examples of what they did, and they still do, and we still do. So that means the people stood, they heard the reading, and then they were given the sense by Nehemiah, the preacher. And in the gospel, Jesus goes to his hometown synagogue and everybody stands up and he reads from the book of the prophet Isaiah and then he sits down and he gives the sense. He began to say, da-da, 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 okay? So I think it's an example of the continuity of the, of the great tradition and how that works and why it's important. So that sort of sets us up in Nehemiah for this. But 1 Corinthians is perhaps the, one of the centerpieces of the readings for this Sunday because here Paul speaks about a concept that is unique in the New Testament to the Pauline literature. 
and that is the body of Christ, the church as the body of Christ. And this appears elsewhere in Paul's writings, but it might be important to speak about this because I talked to you last week about 1 Corinthians and a group of uh, Christians in Corinth who we call Gnostics, the Gnostic Christians, and who had a variety of views about uh, what real Christianity was and what it was for. And they were um, a group that, say, produced a certain amount of tension in the Corinthian church and in the Corinthian community. So Paul is actually using a concept. We can't find this idea of the body of Christ anywhere else but with him. And there are those who suspect that what he has done is borrowed uh, some terminology from the Gnostics to describe the church community. But he is doing this to distance himself from their interpretation and understanding of what the body of Christ means. So the complexity of reading this passage has to do with the church is the body of Christ, but for a Gnostic, that means each one of us is the body of Christ. Okay? We are. Instead of this is the body of Christ. All right? We participate in Christ as opposed to being the body of Christ. So it's a difference, to use fancy terminology, of an ontological reality or a simile. All right? We are like the body of Christ, right? We participate in Christ's body as the community called the church. So he's at pains to say, uh, this is what it is, as opposed to uh, you actually being Christ. So there were those who thought, well, if they receive this enlightenment and all of this secret teaching, they become Christ. They become Jesus. And he is distancing himself from that. And when he gets away from the controversial stuff in Corinth, he writes to the Romans and he said, we are in Christ's body. What does he say here? I had it written down. We are one body in Christ. Well, how are we united in one body? We are united because of the plural contributions that each one of us make to the community. So you read this morning all about how we have uh, people who have varieties of gifts, right? And they contribute. And he begins to describe all of these activities. So the other benefit of reading a reading like that, just like with G G uh, Nehemiah, is that we have a very early depiction of what the organization of the church must have been like. Apostles, prophets, teachers, other people with uh, skills and abilities and spiritual and, and actual talents of one kind or another. So what he's beginning to say is, the church, we, we say, uh, we begin to see now how the church is organized around apostolic leadership. Henry Chadwick says, uh, by the second the end of the second century, three things begin to emerge in this order. The episcopate, the baptismal creed, and the canon of the Holy Scriptures. In that order, 
So the apostles, prophets, and teachers are going to collapse into apostles, and they're going to be the guardians to teach what has been taught. Now, this is going to raise questions for people through the ages, but here's now how we somehow protect what it is we understand the tradition with a capital T is delivering to us through the message and work of Jesus Christ. The baptismal creed is not the creed we recite on Sunday. It's the creed that's in morning and evening prayer, and it's the creed that we say at baptism, the Apostles' Creed, which is an abbreviate, which is shorter. But that begins to emerge very quickly. And by the early 200s, we begin to see the beginnings of how the, the Bible is going to get put together, how we have the Holy Scriptures with the books we have in them, both in what we call the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible and in the Christian Scriptures or the New Testament. So those canons, C-A-N-O-N-S, which means read or standard in Greek, were uh, around for a long time. And for the Christian church, it becomes solidified by 369 A.D. And we have the Christian scriptures in the order that we now have them. And we have the Hebrew Bible in an order which, depending upon where you were from, uh, had some differences. Some only wanted to have the Hebrew literature in the Old Testament, and some wanted to include those scriptures that, that the Jews read but that were in Greek and not Hebrew in their canon. <coughs> and so that uh, difference has continued after the Protestant Reformation. Protestants don't read the Greek stuff as canonical and Episcopalians, Eastern Orthodox, and Roman Catholics do read the Greek stuff as, canon as canonical. Or in our case, we hedge slightly and say uh, they should be read for edification but not for doctrine. I said this a couple of months ago. The reason, the reason for that is, is if you read some of the Greek stuff, you discover people praying for the dead and taking up collections for the dude and stuff like that, which support a view that the reformers did not wish to continue supporting. Okay? So that's part of some, what, what some of that may be. I read a commentary about 1 Corinthians this week, one of them, and it says, One of the distinguishing characteristics of the early church was the ongoing respect for diversity and the equal welcome given to those who gathered. Rich landowners shared communion with their slaves. Peasants and their rulers broke bread together. It was like nothing people had ever seen. In Christ, rich and poor, ruler and outcast were made one. And that's what Paul means when he speaks of the body of Christ. We are one in the body of Christ. You know? St. Augustine used to say, we sometimes, at the end of the Eucharist, when you do the fraction, the breaking of the bread, and then we say the gifts of God for the people of God, he would say, you are the body of Christ. Become what you are. So that uh, we have in this some, somehow our marching orders about how we're to constitute ourselves and so on. But we also have the affirmation that sort of harks to the Christmas affirmations, and that is the affirmation of the goodness of our humanity, that each one of us can achieve the highest of our human potential, meaning the skills and abilities and the talents uh, that we possess are useful, whether they're big ones or small ones. 
and that it is not our job to make a judgment about which ones are big and which ones are small, and that's what Paul was at pains to do last week with the uh, Gnostics in Corinth. So what we take away from this is to remember the diversity of the body of Christ and the necessity for each of us to be part of it and to make the contribution we make. So Jesus uh, goes back to his hometown in today's uh, reading. What, what they don't include in this, in this reading today is that he has come from his 40 days in the wilderness, and he's come back now to begin, really, his earthly ministry in a new way. And he goes to his hometown, and he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and it says, as was his custom. So that's an indication to us that he was a pious Jew. And we also get something else that we don't emphasize greatly often, and that is Jesus must have known how to read Hebrew because it tells us that he got up and read from Isaiah, unrolled the scroll and read. So somehow he knew that he knew knew Hebrew, which was rare and, and for many unlikely, but he appears to have been able to read this. And he reads the great liberating text about what uh, he has come to do, but he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He speaks about the acceptable year of the Lord. And this reminds me to say something about a concept that is very much part of the teaching of Jesus and the, the expectations and yearnings of the people of his time and before. And that's the sense of something called the Jubilee. The Jubilee was a, how do we say this? Uh, it was after every, I don't know, how, how long was the Jubilee, Ernest? About eight, six, seven, seven years. Seven years. And that meant every seven years a Jubilee was declared, or at least this is what the, the ideal was. And that meant that uh, people who had lost their land had it returned to them, all, all debts were forgiven. Uh, it was a, a thing where everything got restored in some way back to uh, a better time. There actually is no real historical evidence that we ha- they ever had a jubilee. I would guess it would be sort of unpopular with the bankers <laughs> if you had a jubilee, right? Or whatever the equivalent of bankers were then, or anybody who, you know, had investments of land or one thing or another that they had acquired from somebody else or somebody had lost them and now were to have them given back, that would be a bitter pill. So we don't have any real uh, indication that that's the case. But the other side of this is that um, if there's anybody that needs to be idealists in the world, it's Christian people. And so when Jesus speaks about this, he speaks about the uh, importance of restoration and uh, why God's purposes are fulfilled through this. The idea that we're going to bring freedom to captives, we're going to bring sight to the blind. You know, you can read all these things about the repair of our interior emotional, spiritual, and mental states. And in in a culture like ours that tends to view everything as subjective and internal, and that's what the spiritual life really is all about. That's what we would hope for, and we get it. 
But what Jesus is speaking about today is his program for the transformation of, of the world, a place where it will be easier for people to be good, and that somehow we need to be engaged uh, with those who are less inclined to want to do that because of their privilege or because of their inclinations of one kind or another. And uh, this is what began to get Jesus in a lot of hot water. So what we know about this is that we are the possessors of the spirit just like Jesus. And we understand that this spirit is God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And it means that the uh, skills and abilities and talents we have uh, can and should be used for the purpose of advancing the values of the kingdom of God here. You know, a lot of Christianity for a long time has been spent with saying, I'm a Christian now, so my job is to make sure I go to heaven somewhere else. And the program of Jesus, which he inaugurates today, is what I want you to do when you follow me is not go somewhere else. I want you to help me transform things here. Because that's congruent with God's purposes uh, in the world and what we're supposed to be about. So this week, give thanks for being uh, part of the body of Christ. Uh, give thanks for uh, being possessors of the Spirit of God and uh, have the ability to share that Spirit one with another and others. You know, this, this gift that we have received is not merely for the Christian community itself who's going to spend a whole lot of time patting one another into shape. It's to be given away. We have something that we're to give away. So this is kind of a celebration of uh, giving things away that are important. Amen. Amen.